Cultivating Place is proud to receive support from the American Horticultural Society, celebrating 100 years of trusted, high-quality gardening and horticultural information and community since 1922. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. September, October, November, these are traditional harvest celebration months in the Northern Hemisphere, from variations on Oktoberfests to those around the idea of Thanksgiving. The ancient Jewish harvest festival of Sukkot is celebrated from the full moon on September 20th to September 27th this year, with the autumnal equinox occurring on the 22nd. This week, we enjoy the second of two conversations on the sacred in the everyday and the sacred in the seasonal. We're joined from Philadelphia by Rabbi Arthur Waskow, co-founder of the Shalom Center, which equips activists and spiritual leaders with awareness and skills needed to lead in shaping a transformed and transformative Judaism that can help create a world of peace, justice, healing for the earth, and respect for the interconnectedness of all life. He is also the author of The Seasons of Our Joy, which brings reverent renewal to the ancient agricultural and seasons-based celebrations of the Abrahamic religions, including Judaism. I am really pleased to welcome him to the program today. Thank you very much for being here with me. Well, thank you and shalom to you and to all who are listening to you. I first learned of your work and was directed to your book, Seasons of Our Joy, by a wonderful woman out of the St. Louis area who spoke with us this past spring about the festival of Tubi Shavat. And ever since that um study with with her and conversation with her and the reading of your book, I have been very excited to speak with you more uh, about this concept. But if I were to ask you about the role of plants in your life, personally and spiritually, what, what would that role be? How would you articulate that, Arthur? Well, in our dining room, which has a, a whole wall, essentially, of windows looking out on the world, uh, in the spring, it hasn't happened yet, but should happen within the next three weeks, there are uh, three or four azalea bushes that bloom in startling colors and uh, mostly in uh, blazing red. And I see them as the famous burning bush that Moses uh, got acquainted with, uh, encountered, uh, and the voice that came from the burning bush told him to become the leader of a movement to free the Israelite slaves from ancient Egypt. And a whole dialogue about including a dialogue about what God's name was to be, uh, because Moses said, so if I say to Pharaoh, let my people go to uh, worship, he's going to say, says who? So I'm going to need some name by which to describe you. And of course, the name of God is, uh, is uh, not just like, is your name Fred or Jimmy? But a name of God means how you understand the entire world. So that's uh, a deeply imprinted experience with uh, mythical or mystical or uh, beyond description kind of plant. That universality of uh, a connection to um, God and divinity and communication through the azalea bushes is really beautiful to me um, and resonates with me very, uh, very deeply. Let me say something more about that. What you said about universally re reminded me, there's a wonderful poem 
by Elizabeth Barrett Browning. I can't recite it by, I can recite it by heart, but not exactly, right? But it's by my heart, I'm, I'm reciting it. Uh, what she says is, every bush is a fire with God, but only some of us have the wit to notice. Oh, yeah, yeah. And take us back a little bit, if you would, and, and describe for listeners, you know, your earliest influences in life and the, the people and places and plants even that grew you into a religious leader and scholar for whom this attention to the natural world and cycles would be such an integral part of your, your religious life and your daily life. Well, it doesn't go back to my childhood at all um, because I grew up in a Jewish family in a very Jewish neighborhood of Baltimore. Um, but for my family, uh, being Jewish was not a big deal. And the spiritual uh, route to being Jewish was absolutely not, absolutely not a big deal. Um, uh, there were plants, we had a front yard and a backyard and a whole forest behind the backyard that was owned by, would you believe, a guy named Mr. Woods. <laughs> um, but for me, that, that, that had some meaning in family life and in my sense of love in the family but not connected with religion at all. Uh, but there were, there were purple violets that came up every spring. Uh, and I loved them. I remember making a, a little group of them, too small to make a bouquet, for my mother as a present, just out of love, I guess. Um, but it, there was no, for me at that point in my life, there was no connection with formal religious life or, or formal Jewish life. Um, I went to Sunday school at a nearby synagogue uh, in order to prepare, prepare me to become a bar mitzvah at the age of 13. The bar mitzvah ceremony itself was totally boring. Uh, it was actually based on the week in which we read the story of creation, um, the first chunk of the Hebrew Bible. But nobody paid attention to that. Uh, they just wanted to make sure I knew how to do the chanting. Um, and after 13, after I finished that, I shrugged and basically walked away from uh, Jewish life uh, with the single exception of the Passover Seder, uh, which is about freedom and justice. And that intrigued me a lot and spoke to me with great power. So that I took seriously, but nothing else, not Rosh Hashanah, not Yom Kippur, nothing else. And it wasn't until I was uh, 35 um, and uh, a grown up uh, social activist in the mid 60s, in the early 60s actually, that um, I was deeply, deeply moved, it was the late 60s, basically by the murder of Dr. Martin Luther King. Um, which stirred me. Um, I met him once uh, a night when he was trying to persuade delegates to the Democratic National Convention in 1964 to choose to give credentials to the, to what was called the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, uh, an integrated, mostly black, integrated, 
group of uh, devoted activists who were not permitted to vote by the state of Mississippi, who held an election in churches uh, to elect a delegation to Atlantic City. So I met Dr. King because they asked him to come to persuade the credentials committee of the convention to admit the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party instead of the segregationist uh, all-white uh, delegation that was the normal one from Mississippi. So I met him then, I was, I was deeply, deeply moved. He wasn't charismatic at all. He was talking one-to-one -one with these delegates. It was really hard work. They didn't want to change what they were doing. They were scared of uh, President Lyndon Johnson, who was bound and determined not to seat the Freedom Party. So he did some of the hardest work I've ever seen a human being do all night to persuade them. Uh, and that seemed to me to be far more impressive than the charismatic speeches. And then when he was killed in 1968, it turned out that the first night of Passover was one week later. And a group of us spent that, that week, the president had sent the army to occupy the city of Washington uh, because there was a black uprising. And the president also imposed a curfew in theory, applying to everybody in the city, but the police didn't care if white folks were on the streets. There were thousands of blacks uh, arrested, only charged that they were on the street, not in their houses uh, uh, and violating the curfew. So here's the army occupying the city, taking over the schools that my kids went to, uh, taking over the traffic circles, because you could put one machine gun in the center of the circle and command six different broad avenues uh, at the same time. And I was involved because of the curfew in getting uh, food and medicine and doctors and lawyers into the black community, which otherwise was totally cut off by the curfew. And I did that day and night for a week. And then came the first night of Passover and I walked home to begin to prepare for the Seder. And that meant walking past the army. And it meant walking past a Jeep with a machine gun pointed at the block I lived on. And uh, my innards, my guts, more than my brain, began to say, this is Pharaoh's army. And you're going home to do the Seder about liberation from Pharaoh. This is Pharaoh's army on the streets. And the Seder, which I'd taken seriously, became not just serious, but like a volcano of energy. And I learned my way into, I'm not even sure I would say learn. I was called or forced or both <laughs> to create what became known as the Freedom Seder, the first Haggadah, evidently, the, the Haggadah means the telling of the story of the liberation from Egypt that included a non-Jewish liberation struggle, the struggle of Blacks in North America from uh, against slavery, against racism. And we actually decided to create a Seder using that text of the Freedom Seder on the first anniversary of King's death, April the 4th, which is coming up in just a few days, April the 4th, 1969. And it turned out that that transformed me <laughs> and it transformed most Jewish understanding of the Seder, of the Passover Seder. So the plants that were, there are plants that are really important for the Passover Seder. After all, it was created by farmers and shepherds. And one of the plants is simply barley or wheat that makes a bread that you, there wasn't any time 
to let it rise like ordinary bread. Uh, it's, it's a bread that is bodily what Dr. King meant when he said the fierce urgency of now, because there was no time you can bake matzah, the unleavened, unrisen bread in 18 minutes and then get going if you're uh, going to be a band of runaway slaves. So that was one element of plants as they affected uh, my uh, Jewish life at the moment when my Jewish life became really important to me. Another is uh, you're supposed to eat a bitter herb. Uh, what most people use, what we use, is a horseradish root. And it is really bitter. <laughs> yes, it is. And it was so bitter that you wish you can't breathe. And you mm -hmm. wish you didn't have to breathe because mm. it's, so, it's so bitter. So uh, uh, there are, you, you begin the Seder with munching on uh, dill or parsley, clearly, uh, which you dip in salt water, which some people think are the, slave, the tears of slavery. Other people, including me, think those are greens dipped into the seawater from which all life came in the first place. So that's another of the plants that becomes uh, really uh, crucial in the ceremony and really profoundly spiritual. Yeah. And so at this age of mid-30s, with these intense and personally powerfully transformative experiences, but also, you know, as a country, they were these powerful transformative experiences as well. You go on to build a religious life that is so much more full, full bodied from you. And it is, is often referred to as the Jewish renewal movement. And, and you go on to do even more with it. Can you describe for people what this Jewish renewal movement is or d give us a description of it so people will get an understanding of how this, this spirit emanated your entire life and course from there. Right. Well, the movement for Jewish renewal, I more and more think of myself as involved in transformative Judaism, not just renewal okay. of the Jewish people, but a movement to transform the world uh, toward what Dr. King called the beloved community. And not only beloved, but loving community. Uh, we live in a world in which, as we've just seen in recently in our own country and in many countries around the world, subjugation, domination, has become the form of leadership. It's destructive. Uh, I recently published a book called Dancing in God's Earthquake, The Coming Transformation of Religion. Um, and it's about the, the trajectory of renewal toward transformation and toward uh, healing the relationship between humanity and the earth. In Hebrew, human being is Adam, and earth is Adama. And I love the two words because they mean they're connected like this. And that's the reality that earth and humanity are deeply interconnected. When you say the environment, that means it's out there somewhere. And uh, the truth is that we are intertwined. This is Cultivating Place. Rabbi Arthur Waskow is the author of The Seasons of Our Joy, which brings reverent renewal to the ancient agricultural and seasons-based celebrations of the Abrahamic religions. We're speaking with him today about the sacred in our everyday and seasonal lives with plants. We'll be right back after a break. Stay with us. 
Cultivating Place is made possible in part by listeners like you and by support from the American Horticultural Society. As the AHS turns 100, their focus on quality horticultural information is more needed than ever. In the past decade, they have doubled down on their integration of science, education, social responsibility, environmental stewardship, community, and joy in this gardening world. With their in-depth journal, The American Gardener, their reciprocal admissions at public gardens, and their many programs, including their upcoming October virtual garden market and their upcoming Great Gardeners Conversations, kicking off on October 10th with the remarkable plantswoman, Karen Washington. You do not want to miss this. Hosted by Holly Shimizu, former director of the U.S. Botanic Garden, this is an event to mark on your calendars and register for. Listeners of Cultivating Place receive a $10 discount on annual individual membership to the AHS. So for your annual membership to the American Horticultural Society for the special Cultivating Place rate of just $25 a year, head on over to www.ahsgardening.org forward slash CP. While there, make sure to register for the October 10th Great Gardener Conversation with Gardener political and community food justice advocate, Karen Washington. Hey, it's Jennifer. In-gathering. I like this word. I like its connotations of both harvest and pulling ourselves together, inward and yet still communal, reflective and contemplative, but still gathering. Which brings me to a story I want to share with you all from my travels to Southern California this past weekend for a lovely day of history and contemporary garden conversation at the Chumash Indian Museum with photographer Caitlin Atkinson and with museum folk, including garden coordinator Brianna Rotella, director Barbara Tejeda, and Dale Bingham, visitor services coordinator there. Finally, we were joined as well by Hoopa Elder and plantswoman Cat High. Cat's home garden and plant work, along with the ethnobotanical garden at the Chumash Indian Museum, are featured in Caitlin and my book, Under Western Skies. On the seven-hour drive down the I-5 corridor, which essentially bisects California from north to south, to get from where I live in the north to the Chumash Indian Museum on the northern edge of the L.A. Basin, you pass over a large stretch of the Central Valley of California. What was once a vast expanse of native grassland, dry in summer as it is now and damp in winter, is now a landscape layered with the history of settler mentality, overlaid with big agriculture, overlaid with water reality and seasonal as well as longer-term drought, which has resulted in acres and acres, miles and miles of abandoned orchards, which actually means rows and rows of standing dead trees. And this is interspersed by a now industrial transportation mindset, which is manifested as many outposts of large distribution centers for FedEx and UPS and Amazon. These are behemoth, lifeless, concrete places. While the contours of the land is still visible, rolling golden hills to the west as you drive south and the craggier silhouette of the Sierra Nevada across the Great Valley to the east. The details tell a tragic tale. As we drove, we noticed, though, that the roadsides were covered with sacred datura, mounds of deep grayish, bluish green foliage spiked with bloom the white trumpets making their presence known even from a distance, and no doubt, if you were next to them, they fill the air with fragrance each evening and then folding back into themselves by mid-morning. They must be abuzz with bees and hummingbirds and pollinating moths come nightfall when the blooms are open in full. 
I mentioned the abundance of these white flowers, known as being very poisonous, but also as powerful medicinal and culturally significant plants for indigenous peoples of the American West, including the Chumash and Kat's own people, the Hoopa. Kat turned to me and said, you know why there are so many right now, don't you? And I thought for a moment and then I hazarded a guess. I guess because they like disturbed land, and the land is very disturbed right now. And she shook her head no. She said, because the world needs more ceremony, Jennifer. They are trying to tell us that we need more ceremony, more meaning-making through rituals and offerings and praise songs and gratitude, the kind of ceremony that is the source and foundation of all of our religious and seasonal rituals in sync with the natural world all around us. We need more ceremony. We heard it last week from Kristen Peers. We are hearing it this week with Rabbi Waskow. What does that mean to me or you, that we need more ceremony? I don't know, of course. And there isn't one answer, of course. We will all have our own answers. But I can tell you that in my life, I know that our gardens and plant friends offer us the structure for incorporating the idea and the actions of ceremony and these sacred cycles every day that turns to night, every cycle of the moon across the month, every cycle of the sun around the year across the seasons of our entire lives. Our gardens, our houseplants, our neighborhood trees and shrubs and parks and trails are the sites of sacred exchange every day. We're back now to our conversation with land and social justice advocate and lifelong activist, Rabbi Arthur Waskow. As we come back, we speak more about the sacred in our everyday lives and as they are expressed through seasonal traditions and festivals, such as Passover in Easter in the spring and harvest festivals and the Jewish festival of Sukkot in the autumn. When I was 11 and being taught Hebrew by my grandmother to prepare for, to become bar mitzvah at 13, uh, she taught me first letters and their sounds, ba, ba, be, and then words, and then sentences. And then we came to a sentence that had the Hebrew letters, yud, hey, wo, hey. And those letters, those four letters in English are Y-H-W-H in the Western alphabet, Y-H-W-H. And she told me uh, to pronounce it Adonai, which means Lord. And I said, Grandma, you just taught me the letter for N sound and for D sound, and they aren't there. Uh, so it can't be. And she said, I know. Just do it. <laughs> so I did it for a long time. And then, too long a story to explain why, I found myself trying to pronounce it the way it was written. Y-H-W-H with no vowels. So it was not Yahweh, which has two vowels in it, or Yahovah, which has three vowels in it. No vowels at all. And... Uh, when I tried, what came out was, yeah, just the breath. And I thought, my first thought was, well, that makes sense. At least one of the real names of the real God shouldn't be in Hebrew or Egyptian or Latin or Greek or Chinese or Russian or English or Swahili, but in all of them. And there's only one sound that's in every human language. Uh, that's just breathing. And the second thing that came to me was, but it's not just human, Wasco. 
every life form on the planet breathes. The vegetation breathes in, breathes in carbon dioxide and breathes out oxygen and animals, including human animals, breathe in the oxygen and breathe out CO2. And that interchange is what keeps life going on the planet. Yes. So in that sense, the breath, wow. I mean, you talk about plants. Huh. That, that, the plants are what take in the CO2 and give out oxygen, making it possible for us all to live. So that I thought, now that's a great metaphor for God, much better than king or lord. And I've been uh, working ever since to convince people to start thinking about God as the breath of life, not as king or lord. When when you made that sound, that sound of of your breath pronouncing those letters all together, which your grandmother taught you was another name for Adonai, I saw, like in my mind, Arthur, I saw the stomata opening on the green leaves of the oak trees in my region right now, right. you know, ta taking all of it in and breathing it back out to us. And that is a an exchange and a visualization worth just pausing with for right. a minute. Yeah. Right. That's now the heart of my spiritual, my Jewish, and my general spiritual life. And so you you went on uh, from there to do, you, you have done so much al along this, um, the line of this work, the arc of this work in your life, um, founding the Shalom Center and writing and speaking and engaging all manner of people in this conversation and moving this, this concept and reverence of exchange forward. And you, you wrote the book Seasons of Our Joy, a modern guide to Jewish holidays, in, in which you, you outline the seasons of an, of an annual cycle, also, but the, the, the seasons of a lifespan, a human lifespan, and, and you tie the importance of this interrelationship between humans and all of the lives around them into every one of these holidays. You really sort of highlight and underline the importance of these things happening together in their time. Can, can you discuss a little bit more the seasons of our joy and some of its basic premises, the beginning of which is that the Torah itself is called the, the tree of life. Right, right. So when I wrote the book, what almost all Jews were taught was that the festivals came out of moments of history, resisting Pharaoh, not totally clear whether that's history or a very powerful legend, but it was treated as if it were history. That Hanukkah is about resisting another, uh, another empire, um, that they were all like that. And I started, I wanted to write a book about the festivals. And when I started looking at them deeply, um, remember I wasn't coming with the burden or the, or the benefit of a long education in all of this. I was coming with very little. Mm. Uh, so uh, I started looking at them and it seemed totally obvious to me that they were grounded in the seasons of the year, that all of them were. The Hanukkah was about the darkest time of the year in the Northern Hemisphere, uh, where uh, not only the sun uh, was less sunny than, <laughs> than any other time of the year, right. but it also comes, it begins on the 25th of a lunar month. The word month is really month. Right. It's really uh, defined by the moon. So 
on the 25th of a lunar month, um, the moon is disappearing and it disappears. So, so Hanukkah, the festival eight days and nights begins on the 25th of a lunar month. And I say month because month is really month. Uh, that's the origin of the word. And our months once upon a time were lunar. So the 25th of it, it means that the moon is about to disappear. You can see still a slice of moon and then it disappears. And by the end of the eight days, it comes back and a new moon appears. Uh, so this is in the Northern hemisphere, this is the darkest time of the year. The sun is as little as it gets and the moon is little and little and little and then no uh, moon. So it's, and what do we do with that? We light lights. Eight nights, we light lights. It seemed clear to me that this is, <laughs> this is no accident. This is honoring the time of darkness and of some light and imploring the light to return. Passover, the rabbis set up the calendar so it was a lunar calendar, except that you had to make it uh, jiggle so that Passover would always be in the spring, always. So, and it always uh, is on a full moon in the spring. Uh, why? Well, it seems clear. There was originally, and if you read carefully, the biblical description of the origins of Passover, you realize there are really two festivals. One is shepherds uh, celebrating the birth of new lambs. And the other one is farmers celebrating the sprouting of barley. Mm -hmm. And so the two foods that were originally connected with Passover were a bread made of grinding barley and water and no yeast and just heating it, you had fire and uh, a lamb uh, that you celebrated. In fact, the word Pesach, which leads to the word Paschal in modern English, uh, especially in Christian English, Paschal, from the word Pesach, it seems that Pesach originally meant the way a newborn lamb kind of stumbled and skipped and stumbled uh, its way in the world until it <laughs> learned to walk right. Then the shepherds to celebrate the new lambs created a kind of dance that was a skipping dance. And then finally some brilliant uh, writer or liturgist uh, poet uh, said, oh, God skipped in the same kind of a dance. God skipped the houses of the Israelites uh, instead of killing their firstborn. But it, God did the skipping dance that the shepherds did and the shepherds did the skipping dance that the newborn lambs did. <laughs> so the, there are these two spring holidays of the sprouting of the barley and the birthing of the lambs that come together. And then there's this transformation of those holidays into Passover, the passing over, the skipping over yeah. of the houses. That's what the Passover means. And Pesach is that word in Hebrew. So, so again, the festival is clearly deeply, deeply connected with the uh, uh, rhythms of the earth, the moon, and the sun. So tell us a little bit about the fall schedule of festivals. One of the major holidays is Sukkot, where you build a, a fragile hut. And in theory, very few people do it anymore, but for in theory, for seven days you live in this hut. 
when I wrote Season of Our Joy, the publisher said I had to write a, a glossary of the Hebrew and Yiddish words so people in America would know what they were all about. <laughs> right. So I did. So I wrote sukkah. That's the hut itself. Sukkot means many of them. It's plural. Uh, so I wrote sukkah, hut with a leafy roof. And it came back from the printer, sukkah, hut with a leaky roof. <laughs> and I said, oh, that's God's typographical correction. I'm not fooling with that because the leakiness is even more important than the leafiness. They're both connected. The leakiness means that it's open, it's fragile. Uh, it's the, it's a house that you have to build. You can't go in a cave and say it's a sukkah. You can't sit under a tree and say it's a sukkah. You have to build it. But it's the earliest, the most fragile, the most primitive house that a human being could make. Um, and you make it in the fall uh, when the harvest, uh, the fall harvest is coming in. Uh, you make it so that the harvester, the farmer who's harvesting the grain can live in this very temporary, very fragile house out in the fields. Uh, so again, it's totally connected with the rhythm of the season. This is Cultivating Place. Rabbi Arthur Waskow is the author of The Seasons of Our Joy, which brings reverent renewal to the ancient agricultural and seasons-based celebrations of the Abrahamic religions, including Judaism. He joins us to share more about the sacred in our everyday and seasonal lives with plants. We'll be right back after a break. Stay with us. So thinking out loud this week, huh, you know what I'm going to revisit here. I am sure I do not have to tell any one of you who has been with me in these conversations for any amount of time at all. My whole body was still and listening and hearing when Rabbi Waskow shared his story, his insight, his own burning bush around how to pronounce the name of God. The saying of it being the echo of the very breath of life, which is the divine, the breath of God, whoever God may be in your life, God and God's breath animate our garden lives in and out, in and out, in and out. The azaleas in spring and the leaves of the trees and shrubs in autumn are the blazing face of the divine. How much more ceremony do we need if only we can see and acknowledge what is all around us? I know I get out there sometimes, like this, right now. But then again, in these times, when I am not out there but just stuck in here, in my own head, in my own office, in my own worries, in my own anxiety and sadness and littleness and sometimes even despair, getting out there a little, connecting with the plant companions of my life reminds me there are forces much bigger and better than me. So be it. That might just be the ceremony we need. We're back now to our conversation with land and social justice advocate and lifelong activist, Rabbi Arthur Waskow. As we come back, he shares more about the meaning in the specific rituals associated with the autumn festival of Sukkot, which is celebrated this year from September 20th to September 27th. The cycle begins in the spring. Passover, Pesach, 
is the birth month. It's the birth time. In fact, I really think that uh, the key moment of the Exodus itself, that night, the Torah says that the Israelites had to smear their whole uh, doorway with the blood of a, of a lamb. So not only are newborn lambs, not only is new, new uh, sprouting barley, but they then walk through a, a doorway that is totally bloody. Well, there is one doorway and only one that every human being moves through that's bloody. And that's the womb, the birth womb, mm -hmm. uh, where the doorway to the womb is bloody. And I think it's a signal of being born uh, mm -hmm. anew as a people seeking freedom, which is always about the birth of newness, right? In freedom, you never know what's going to happen <laughs> exactly next. No. That's what being born is about, is never knowing exactly what's going to happen next. So I think it really begins there. Then seven weeks after Passover comes the spring harvest uh, in the land of Israel, when barley is finished growing and you can begin harvesting the spring wheat. And that moment of agriculture becomes in the tradition, the moment of harvesting Torah. So from birth, you then meet God on Sinai. You begin with your own identity, just being born. You grow enough to meet with a capital M, to meet God. So that happens at Shavuot. Then you move through uh, almost six months. It's six months between Passover and Sukkot. And you come to Sukkot, which I think is the growing up, the grown-up moment. It's the moment of fulfillment, of maturity. And then at the end of Sukkot, you have the holiday that's very inward turn, that's uh, not a kind of big blowout of sacrifice or even of uh, the hut, but you take the hut down and that holiday, I think, is the holiday of inward retreat and ultimately death. That's the way in which, as you mentioned before, the lifespan and the earth, moon, sun span really connect. Because the harvest is fulfillment. The work you've done for at least the last six months, and uh, maybe all year, to prepare the earth and the plants and the seed and so on. But what it's not just death. Uh, I think of that festival as the festival of seed. Sukkot is the festival of fruit. Yeah. Uh, big, glowing, you know, mushy. <laughs> Ripe. <laughs> right. Then there's this tiny little almost invisible seed it goes in the earth, it really becomes invisible, it goes deep in the earth. You would think all life is dead, right? Mm. The seed is there to begin growing again, to grow in the spring, to sprout in the spring, uh, showing that. So there's a, I think if you live in the temperate zone anywhere on earth, death and resurrection are part of your spiritual life, whether yeah, you call it that or not. Uh -huh. I think the shift from Sukkot to Shemini Atzeret is about fullness, seeming death, and resurrection. Yeah. And that, that dormancy and that inward like gestation period of time between death and resurrection... Um, is fascinating to, to me and, and modeled to us, right? Taught to us by plants every, every day, every year, every season. Um, right. You mentioned absorbing pagan life. So let me tell you a funny story. 
Okay. Serious funny story. <laughs> okay. Quote. So uh, there's several things. First, not the funny part, but the uh, one of the important rituals of Sukkot is that you hold in your hands three branches of three different trees that grew in the land and still grow in the land of Israel. A palm branch, sort of long and stiff, and two wavy branches of other trees. And in the- Myrtle and willow. That's right. And thank you. And in your other hand, you hold uh, what's called an etrog, or in English, it's a citron. It's a lemony, looks like somewhat like a lemon. It tastes a little sweeter than a lemon, but it's a citrus fruit. And you bring your right and your left hands together and you wave these four species in the seven directions of the earth. Now, what are the seven directions? You wave them yeah. right and left, up and down, front and back. But you're taught to wave them in a way in which you reach out and then you bring these four species into your heart. So the seventh direction, and I want to credit Rabbi Shefa Gold for pointing this out to me. The seventh direction is the inner direction, the direction that goes inward. Maybe that's why it's the seventh day, that's Shabbat, that uh, some genius was trying to replicate in time what he realized was happening in space and that uh, the inner direction in, in time is Shabbat, when you turn inward, uh, not outward. Okay, so you do this, this uh, waving and blessing of the four species. Could you pronounce the name of the three leafy greens together that you're waving? Could you pronounce that word for me? Well, the lulav is the palm branch, and you usually call it benching lulav, blessing the lulav. The etrog is the small fruit. Um, okay, so I was talking about it with my friend, uh, teacher, and sometimes uh, student, as students and teachers and good Jewish uh, conversation, you could mix being both. Uh, no, no person is only a teacher and no person is only a student. So we were talking about this benching up. And uh, I said, you know, it looks to me like a pretty pagan ceremony. And he laughed. He said, if we do it, it's not pagan. Meaning, of course, if we do it, it is pagan, but we have uh, defined it in a way that it celebrates the, the, the breath of life, not just one little local God, but the breath of life mm -hmm. that intertwines all life, all life. Uh, so, but of course, when you say something's pagan, all you're saying is that people who are close to the earth loved it. That's basically what it was. Uh, and uh, any, I would say, intelligent religion makes some kind of connection with the earth, loving the earth. And uh, one way of doing it is when I did this for the first time. Remember, I didn't grow up this way. So I think the first time I benched Lulav, waved the, uh, the four species, I was about 40. And my son, my older uh, offspring, got a son and a daughter, was about 10. So I did it, and then I handed it to him, and I said, now you do it. And I figure that must have been the way literally fathers and sons, probably not mothers and daughters, but maybe some, but mostly fathers and sons did it for the last 3,000 years. Mm -hmm. And he did it. 
And then I asked him a question that was not the usual question that uh, you're that was classically you were supposed to ask your son when he did it. I said, what did it feel like? That's not the right question, <laughs> not the traditional question. What did it feel like? He said, I felt like I was a tree and I could feel my own branches waving in the wind and I could smell my own fruit. So I think that's, I mean, that's the best interpretation of yeah. what we do when we bench Lulav that I ever heard. And I've learned more from my kids and grandkids than from most anybody else about what it really means to go deep, deep into the meaning of Jewish ritual and Jewish practice. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. When, when I have been conversing with you these past couple of days about whether or not you were a good candidate to be a guest on my gardening program, um, I, I see that all the, the ritual um, observation and insight and intelligence you you bring between plants and uh, religious life for anybody to, to witness is some of the best gardening I know. Thank you. I don't want to leave without saying two things. First of all, the website of the Shalom Center is the Shalom Center. Good. The shalomcenter.org. And the second thing is my newest book uh, yeah. is called Dancing in God's Earthquake. Uh, I mentioned that the coming uh, transformation of religion, which I'm trying to bring together everything that I hope that I've learned this last uh, 80 years and uh, brought it together in such a way that I'm pointing it toward the future. I actually, I, I've used, thinking about it, I've used a plant, uh, a plant image, a plant metaphor. I think of it as the harvest of my life. And yeah. usually, people usually think of a harvest as, you know, what you went before. But the whole point of a harvest is to feed the future. So I'm hoping yes. that this is a harvest of the past of my own past that can feed the future. You are seeding, seeding the future with this legacy work. And I am just so, so, it was such a pleasure to speak with you today. Great. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. As you noticed, I, I don't dismiss death and resurrection as part of a spiritual fact. Far from shrugging it, I see it as a central teaching in all, all the great tradition. Thank you. Shalom. Rabbi Arthur Waskow is a co-founder of the Shalom Center in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He is the author of The Seasons of Our Joy, which brings reverent renewal to the ancient agricultural and seasons-based celebrations of the Abrahamic religions, specifically Judaism. He is also the author of Dancing in God's Earthquake, The Coming Transformation of Religion. Listen in next week as we head into the autumn planting period for many regions, and we're joined by a native plant steward and seed keeper, Ernesto Alvarado. Known as the Native Plant Guide on social media, Ernesto shares the love of California native plants through propagation, conservation, horticulture, and that most important ingredient for good germination, a sprinkle of imagination. Join us then. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio. It is made possible by listeners just like you through the support button at the top right-hand corner of every page at cultivatingplace.com. It is also made possible by support from the American Horticultural Society. To read more about and see many images from Rabbi Waskow's Seasons of Our Joy, head to this week's show notes, which you will always find under the podcast tab at cultivatingplace.com. 
The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler and producer and development director Sarah Bohannon. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.